Thanks, y'all. It is really good to get to be y'all. I don't know. Did y'all say y'all here? Is that I immediately stood out as an Arkansan? Yeah, that's that's how you distance yourself from the crowd immediately. It really is an honor to get to be here to share a pulpit of what I consider to be one of the best preachers I know. Um, I love Brian. Brian is one of my best friends in the world. And I can tell you, um, this is what he asked for for his birthday. (laughs) This is his 40th birthday present because that's a couple of weeks from now. And I don't know if this is going to be good or not. Maybe next year y'all can pitch in and buy him an Apple Watch instead or something. (laughs) But I love Brian and Mandy and Carter and Nora a lot. I love this church a lot. I've seen y'all throughout the years. Um, I was here when uh, when a lot of things happened that have been led to this church being more on mission and healthy. And I just love this spirit of goodness that's in this place. I hope you can see that. Every time I come back, I have, I guess, fresh eyes and I can see it. I love it. Um, Okay, so... Advent, the series Advent, the season that we're in, um, Advent's weird for Americans for the most part because we know like Christmas and we're supposed to be shopping and we have Thanksgiving and immediately we forget about giving thanks and we remember probably during Thanksgiving all the specials on Black Friday that we're going to break our budget buying and Advent's different because Advent's about waiting. Advent is actually just a Latin word that means arrival or coming. It, 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 what it means is help is on the way. Help is on the way. And so we wait because we realize that we can't do this by ourselves. So um, it's good to see Holly and Jonathan again. I went to Harding with Holly and Jonathan, although I think Harding selves would be very disappointed in us today. Um, <laughs> But when I was a junior at Harding, I went to Greece for a semester, and it was really like the first time I was ever out of the state of Arkansas. So first day, I have saved up money. I bought my now wife an engagement ring. She doesn't know anything about it. And as soon as we land in Athens, um, first day of being overseas, my wife gets sick. My girlfriend at the time gets sick. And since I know that I'm going to propose later on that semester, I know I need to take care of her. So I'm in downtown Athens. Um, and I'm with another friend, and I need to go buy her some flowers or something. So I say to my friend, Bob, can I, it's his real name, it's not like a fake name, holding place. Sorry, Bobs, if you're out there, a lot of times that's just the go-to generic name. But anyway, so I need to get her flowers. Bob wants to go see the changing of the guard, so he leaves me, this little teenage Arkansan who's never been out of the state of Arkansas in downtown Athens by myself. And I'm looking, wandering around, pre-phones, cell phones, or at least I didn't have a cell phone, and wandering around looking for a flower shop. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, are you an American? And I was like, yes, I am. How did you know that? (laughs) And he says, what are you looking for? And I was like, flowers, my girlfriend is sick. And he's like, you're not going to believe this. I own a flower shop. And I was like, get out of, what providence? (laughs) So he's like, you want to come with me? And I was like, yeah. So he, I follow this guy, Tom is his name. I follow Mr. Tom all the way down this, uh, this alley, down these steps where there's this bar where people are dancing and lights are flashing. And I'm like, Greece has the weirdest flower shops. 
And he's like, hey, I want you to meet somebody. And he takes me over to the bar and there's this woman with a low cut blouse. And, and um, he's like, this is Vera. And Vera leans over the bar and she's like, what is your name? And I was like, it's Jonathan. And she says, what do you do? And I tell her I'm a student at Harding University. And um, she goes, what is your major? And about this time I looked up and realized that there are, no joke, pictures of naked people all over the walls. And she goes, what is your major? And I was like, it's the Bible. <laughs> and <laughs> anyway, she says, buy me a drink. And I'm like, uh, well, I have a, a girlfriend and I actually go to the school that has very strict policies on not buying drink. And she's like, it does not matter. And while I proceed to tell Vera why I think my girlfriend would think it very much matters, these three or four, I'm not making this up, these three or four big men gather around me and they're like, why don't you wanna buy the pretty lady a drink? I'm about this point, you know, I was homeschooled, super sheltered, out of the country for the first time. But I realized, like, wait a second. Pretty girl wants me to buy her a drink. Pictures of naked people on the walls. People, damn. This isn't a flower shop after all. <laughs> I'm going to pause that story because I don't want to talk about how I went all Rambo to get out of there or whatever. But I will tell you, you I mean, y'all know what that was now, right? Like now there's been awareness that's been raised about that. Like Vera, that was the human trafficking. Vera didn't want to be there any more than I wanted to be there. In fact, the reason Vera was there is because of guys like me, who that's a sustainable business model for people to use and exploit humans. You know, one of the problems when we talk about Advent help being on the way, one of the problems we modern American people have is we honestly don't think we need help. I mean, other people, sure, people who traffic and human trafficking, all that stuff, they need help. But the biggest problem I think we have is that we don't think we have a problem. We are blissfully unaware of our self-inflicted wounds. We think, have you ever noticed this? I mean, this is why Advent is a difficult thing to preach. You think you're okay. Have you ever noticed that you're, you're all right? As long as you're all right. As long as you are getting your way. As long as things are kind. But, but when your candidate loses, or, or when there's not enough resources, or when somebody else gets their way, something happens inside of us. And, and it pushes out all the ways that we try to imagine ourselves. You know, we try to think, you know, I grew up thinking if I, got, if I did church right, I was okay. Then I, I went through a season where I was like, as long as I care for the right causes, thinking that caring, being a part of a right cause would make me a righteous person. But have you ever noticed that when things stop going okay, you might do stuff that you're not proud of, that maybe if you saw in other people, you might even say was wrong. You might even call it a sin. That's not a word we use a lot. There's a book that I highly recommend called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford. Uh, Francis Spufford is an English novelist who is in, lives in England, um, grew up in the Anglican tradition, and then he walked away from faith for decades. And then he came back to faith. And he wrote a book called Unapologetic, How Despite Everything, Christianity Still Makes Surprising Emotional Sense. And he's writing it as a British man to Brit people in England. 
And so he drops a lot of F-bombs. He uses a lot of salty language. But he says, I'm going to try to build a case for Christianity from first principles. And I think he does a very compelling job. And his first principle is sin. His very first thing. He calls it the human propensity to mess things up. But he does not use that word. He, he says sin is what, it's the human tendency that we all have to break things, to break moods, relationships, promises, people we care about, and ultimately ourselves. Sin is what people flying a plane into a skyscraper has in common with making fun of the heavyset kid with zits. Sin is what doing crystal meth has in common with having an affair with someone you don't even really like. It's what murder, a real murder, has in common with telling that story at the dinner party about an absent mutual friend, and you know it's gonna hurt them when it gets back to them you told that story, but you tell it anyway because it's just so funny. If you let yourself take, your, take seriously the implication that we keep doing this stuff and don't let yourself buy your own press, that it, because you know the words we use for it, right? I made a mistake. We well, love that word, but have you ever noticed like you sometimes schedule your mistakes? I mean, some of us have bought plane tickets to make our mistake. I'm currently feeling like maybe I've done that. <laughs> Just kidding. No, um, that, that yes, there, we can be tender and kind, but we can also be cruel sometimes at the same time. And we would like for this not to be true. Our culture conspires to get us to not pay attention to it, to not look too deeply in the mirror. Just keep shopping. Just keep watching Netflix. Stop paying attention to what happens inside. But if you live long enough, something happens. Maybe it's some kind of crisis in life. Maybe that recreational habit becomes a full-blown addiction. Maybe you have an affair or the relationship stops or you, now you just see kids on the weekend or whatever. And, and that's if you're lucky, you're forced to look inside and realize that that thing that you hate when you see it in other people, it's also in me. And it's not just the dramatic stuff. Maybe it's that you woke up one day in your late 30s and all of a sudden realized, like, you do not have the life that you wanted. And you chose it. Every day, you undermine your own self by choosing against your deepest desires because your deepest desires aren't properly arranged. In fact, you realize that you're actually more equipped for tragedy than a happy ending. And that's when it dawns on you. You have indeed messed things up. Of course you have. You're human. This is actually the one thing we all have in common. This is the one, human beings are not equal. We're created equal. Outside of the image-bearing thing of God, this is the one thing to reach for for equality. This is what every single one of us have in common. And that's why the Bible, don't, don't buy into the kind of modern secular narrative that um, all world religions are basically the same. They start from the same place same place of brokenness. But there is nothing like this kind of God who dies naked and shameful on the cross. And the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament are unique in like kind of the holy writings of different religions in that if you read the Bible from an outside perspective, not the Judeo-Christian kind of like Western civilization worldview that I assume a lot of people here 
grew up in. If you read the Bible with people on the outside of the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition, one of the things that comes back to you from their perspective is there's not very many good people in here. Sincerely, that's one of the things, if you're reading it with people who have no familiarity with the Bible, one of the things they say regularly is, where are the heroes? Because one of the, pro- one of the things the Bible is brutally honest about is sin. Like, it's not filled with good, good guys versus bad guys. Even the good guys are bad. So, for example... In the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, um, halfway through, there's a woman named Tamar. Tamar has married a man named Ur, and Ur does something bad, and God kills him. Now, that might offend your modern sensibilities, but listen, if you've read Genesis up until this point, and you see all the stuff that other people did that God didn't kill, you're like, this has got to be bad. Whatever it is, God, we'll, we'll just trust you on this one. Now, back in the day, she, Tamar didn't have a child, and back in the day, to protect the Jewish woman, or this is actually pre-Judaism, because anyway, but um, to protect a woman, what they would do if a woman was married to a man and he died before they had a child together, um, they would, if he had a brother, they would say, okay, he steps in and he helps her to have a child. And that child would be considered um, his late brother's son or daughter. So Ur has a, a brother named Onan and Onan comes in and uh, Onan does something wicked as well. And God kills him too. And the father of these two boys has one more son. And Tamar, because it was custom and it was a way that you, uh, Tamar was gonna honor her first husband, Ur, Tamar goes to her father-in-law, Judah, and says, hey, you have uh, w- one more son. But Judah is like paying attention to the trend here. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, we'll totally let that happen. Um, just give me some time. And he stalls. And Tamar starts realizing like, oh, he's never going to do this. And so Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, like you do. And she goes off to a, uh, um, like a shady part of town and waits for her father-in-law because she knows he goes to the shady part of town. And she's dressed up, I assume, pretty significantly because he doesn't recognize it's his daughter-in-law. And so she negotiates the price for sex. They negotiate um, the price of a goat. That sounds weird to you, but I have paid for stuff with goats before. <laughs> Growing up in Arkansas, I, I paid for piano lessons in goats. I kid you not. Like when I worked at a church in Fort Worth, the preacher there asked me like, how much did you pay for piano lessons? And I was like, how do you do the goat to dollar ratio? <laughs> Anyway, so that was, that was what they negotiated the price, but you don't carry around goats in your back pocket. So Tamar is like, well, or uh, Judah, the father-in-law is like, well, I don't have the goat. So here's my promise that I will get you the goat later, uh, prostitute who I don't know. And he gives her his signet ring, which is like a cross between the debit card and the driver's license. And anyway, gives it to her and um, goes to pay the goat fee a little bit later. And they can't find the prostitute anywhere. Judah's like, well, all right, I guess that worked out. A couple months later, Tamar turns up to be pregnant, and the village is outraged. They're so angry. She has done this dishonorable, disrespected thing. And Judah, who is like the village elder, um, is, is also equally incensed. How dare she do this? So he sentences her to death, and Tamar sends Judah. She says, you're right, I am guilty of this, and um, I guess the honor killing is due. But the father 
is the guy who owns this signet ring. And Judah has a change of heart. And Tamar has twins. Another time in Israel's history, they uh, are about to enter into the promised land. We skipped a whole bunch right there. They're in slavery for 400 years. Uh, One thing leads to another. They get out of slavery. They're wandering around for 40 years. And they're about to go into the promised land. And they send two spies in to check out, or they send some spies in to check out the, the promised land. And there is a hooker, a, a prostitute named Rahab, who's like, believes that God is wanting them to have this land. And so she, she brings these spies in, shelters them. And listen, in the Bible, or in, the, in this language, there are two different words for prostitute. One is the honorable word. It's kind of the um, uh, word for prostitutes who worked for the temple religion. Um, it was an honorable kind of profession because you were doing it for the gods or whatever. And the other one is the kind that does it for money. The Bible uses that kind. Rahab was not the honorable kind. In fact, the, the cord that they give her to show where... Um, where her family is to protect her is red, scarlet, and that was the color of sin. I don't know about you, I have, my wife and I have five kids, that's one way to live your life, and uh, when you read those children's Bible stories, and I'm sure y'all probably have children's Bibles in here, and that's great, and I understand the reason for children's Bible, but when I read children's Bible stories to my kids, I cringe, because I mean, like, they just take so much out. I'm like, at some point, just add a you know, unicorn and a Tickle Me Elmo in there if you're going to, you know what I mean? Because the Bible is brutally honest about stuff. Well, what about this? A few generations later, um, there is this family. Israel is having a famine, kind of like what you were talking about, Emily, with uh, food bank. You know, when resources go down, resources get limited. Israel's having a famine, and so people have to move away. In fact, they, one family moves to this neighboring region called Moab, and Moab was where they lived. It was very problematic for lots of reasons. But you got you to gotta do what you got to do when you're trying to just eat. And they live there for a few years, and um, it's a husband and wife and their two sons. And the two sons marry Moabite women. And then a, a couple of years later, the husband, the patriarch of the family, dies, And then a little bit later, both of those sons die too. And because it's famine and because the resources are really limited, it looks like these three widows are just going to starve to death. They're certainly going to have to turn to something like prostitution. I mean, there wasn't like ancient support systems for stuff like that. And they don't live with family. And so the, the woman who was kind of the matriarch of the family, Naomi, she gets so depressed. She actually says, I want to change my name to bitter. Some of you are like, I think I have that person in my family. (laughs) And she tries to send her daughters-in-law's away because she knows the future that she's facing is really bleak. And one of them leaves. And the other one, Ruth, doesn't. In fact, Ruth says, you know what? No, I'm going to take care of you. In fact, I... I'm going to convert from the faith that I grew up in, which was the God Shemosh, um, really bad God. Um, I'm going to convert to your people. I'm going to convert to your faith. Your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And I am not going to leave you alone. 
And Naomi and Ruth go back to Israel. Now, here's the problem. Ruth is a Moabite. Now, throughout the Bible, God has condemned Israelites marrying Moabites. And for good reason. It wasn't because of an ethnic thing. It was because they worshiped the god Chemosh. And if you knew what Chemosh was, you would condemn it too. Chemosh was known for wanting child sacrifices. Look in Jeremiah 31. Um, there, uh, there's all these places. He demands child sacrifices. This, and God is not like that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not like that. But Naomi's sons had married Moabites. And when they come back, the whole family doesn't want to support this new addition to the family, especially because the rest of the the men have died. And and so because resources are scarce, they don't want to support them. And, And eventually someone who's not really related steps in, a guy named Boaz, and he meets Ruth's strength with his own, and they come together, and at first, you know, like modern American people, we read the book of Ruth, and we're like, wow, this is like a Hallmark movie. No, when it was first read, it would have looked more like Schindler's List or Selma. I mean, racial tensions are so high in this story. When the resources get limited, the veneer of, of civilization get stripped away pretty easily. And yet, in the middle of all this, Ruth and Boaz find each other, and they have a baby named Obed, and he grows up and has a son named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and has a son, lots of sons, but one of them is named David. Now, David is where we get in a little bit more familiar territory. King David Everybody who has lived in Western civilization for long at least knows about David, and you probably know his most famous mistake. David has like a thousand wives, like you do, and, but at one point, all his nation is out at war, and he's not, which is unusual for a king, at least a king who's a good leader. And he is, um, he's at night, and he looks out, and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. And she's bathing, Bathsheba's bathing for privacy. But because he's the king, he has a building a little bit taller than everybody else's, and so he can see it. And immediately he's smitten with desire. And he asks servants, hey, who is that woman? And they're like, well, that's actually a a woman who is married, Bathsheba, she's married to a soldier, Uriah, who is fighting a war that you started, but you're not fighting in. And David's like, bring her over, because a king gets what a king wants. And he sleeps with Bathsheba. Not that she had a choice in the matter. And choices that David made have consequences. And Bathsheba winds up pregnant. And David, like powerful men throughout history, immediately realizes this is going to look bad. So he decides he's going to cover it up. He brings Uriah back from battle and says to Uriah, you know what? You need some R&R. You need to spend some time just relaxing, get with Bathsheba. You guys do married couple stuff, whatever, you know. But Uriah is an honorable man serving a king who is not, and he refuses to do that while his friends are fighting in war. And so David realizes he's gonna have to up his cover up, and he sends Uriah back to battle, to the 
heat of the battle with instructions that he carries with him on his own death march to hand the general, hey, stick him in the hottest part and then withdraw. And eventually, it works. Uriah killed, Uriah's killed, David marries Bathsheba, they have a child, and everyone lives happily ever after. Actually, that's the way the story would go in most ancient um, religions. But the God of Israel is not that God. In the ancient world, religion was existed to endorse the status quo. But in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, for every king there is a prophet. And a prophet named Nathan comes up and says, yeah, you're the king, but there is a God who you answer to, and this God was watching. And what David does next is stunning because he doesn't do what our modern celebrities and politicians do. He genuinely repents. He repents. He takes full responsibility publicly and privately. The fact that this story is in your Bible and that David is known as a man after God's own heart is stunning because the Bible is not filled with a bunch of polished people. It really isn't. It's filled with three-dimensional characters who have a tendency, the human propensity to mess things up like you and me. Now, Imagine you live in the first century, because that's kind of what we do when we light these candles. We remember, we put ourselves in the position of Israel. For hundreds of years, you've been waiting on God to act. The situation in the world has not gotten any better. In fact, it's gotten worse and worse. And there's not been any new prophets. The word of the Lord was rare. And all of a sudden, something happens. Scott McKnight, who is a New Testament scholar and a friend of ours, says that the last book in the Jewish, um, this is important, the last book in the Jewish version of the Hebrew Scripture, it's arranged differently than it is in like the Christian, it's same, same material, but just arranged differently. The last book in the Hebrew Scriptures for Jewish people is Second Chronicles. And you know how Second Chronicles ends? Just a genealogy. And the first book in the next testament the new testament is matthew and it starts with the genealogy and look how matthew opens up the new testament in matthew chapter 1 this is the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob jacob the father of judah and his brothers judah was the father of perez and zerah whose mother was tamar Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, 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 the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of, how would y'all say this? Salmon. Is it salmon like the fish or salmon? <laughs> right? I know. I've, I've always had, I like the extent, existential crisis when I get to this part. Um, yeah, okay. The father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Matthew opens up the story of God doing a new thing in history by telling all the highlights of the worst things. So first off, he's highlighting women. And did you notice that when he talks about um, David, he talks about Uriah's wife? That is not to diminish Bathsheba. It is to highlight the sin of David. Matthew does something that no other genealogy of its time does. He includes women, but he also includes these kinds of stories. So why does he do this? 
I, I, just to let you know how significant this, the sitting king of the Jews at the time was King Herod. And King Herod, when he became king, one of the first acts he did was hire people to clean up his actual genealogy because that was your claim to authority. So, you know, don't we all wish we could kind of do that? Can we just write Uncle Fred out of the, just for some people, you're the person they're wanting to write out the genealogy. But it's important to remember that when this all happens, it, listen, in, uh, in America, in post-Christian America, being a Jesus follower is embarrassing, candidly, right? I mean, like, there's so much stuff that you say, you're like, I'm not associated with that. Um, but it's important to remember, this is kind of a feature, not a bug, of the Jesus story. It is way more embarrassing for these first few hundred years than anything that we've experienced in the last few decades. And part of the reason why, one, is that Jesus died naked. Shame is worked into the story we believe from the very beginning. But the other is right out of the gate. You know what people thought of Jesus and his birth? They thought he was out of wedlock in a world where that didn't happen. Um, When I was growing up in high school, um, and this, you know, it's so like Christmas and goosebumps and cinnamon and all that stuff. But when you make it real, like all of a sudden you're like, oh no, that, that's really sketchy. When I was in high school, there was this couple that were dating and she turned up pregnant and they tried doing this. I kid you not. The, the woman was like, how can this be? I've never known a man. And we're like, we're pretty sure that didn't happen. <laughs> right? And that's exactly, I mean, these people were not more evolved when it comes to this than they were. You know, imagine a teenage, a young teenage girl is like, I don't know what happened. Yeah, sure. Go ahead and tell your friends that, Mary. We know how this works. And the entire time Jesus is growing up, they think he's born out of wedlock. You see this in the gospels. I mean, it's little digs that they would have known for hundreds of years after this story, they would have known when Pharisees say, isn't this the son of the carpenter? What they're saying is, remember how he came about? The word that they would have used for Jesus is mamzer. Every culture has a word for a son like that, and none of them are good. Jesus was born in shame. A lot of times, a lot of people actually think the reason there was no room for Mary in the inn was because of that. And Matthew starts off his gospel addressing what happened with Jesus by saying, actually, it's way worse than you think. And then he says this. Same chapter, a few verses later after the genealogy. If you could put that up. But after he had considered, after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, because he's wrestling with this. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from the sins. I actually believe the virgin birth happened. And it's a weird thing to kind of take a stand on. But one of the things I think it matters is something from outside of us has got to save us. Because I don't know about you, but personally, the worst parts of myself I have learned, not from when I'm trying to be bad, but from when I'm trying to be good. Have you ever noticed that social media shaming, almost if you were to ask the people who do it, to a person, they're trying to make the world better. 
Sometimes they're cruel because they're trying to get the world to be kinder. Have you noticed this? It's, it's Stalin and Hitler and people like that. If you were to ask them what they're doing, they've got reasons. And in fact, if you dig down deep enough, they almost always use words like love for, love of. I don't know about how your religious upbringing was, but we could be, in the name of trying to be holy, we could be so judgmental and self-righteous because it's not just the bad stuff that makes up the human condition. It's the stuff we do to each other when we're trying to be good. But Jesus, and this is what Matthew chapter one is trying to say, Jesus was born in this and through this, but not like this. He's the new Adam. He's going to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's for this world. He's in this world, but he didn't come from this world. And his birth means we can become like him. This is the heart of grace. It's the heart of understanding Advent. Christmas is not some neat, clean, Hallmark bedtime story. David, David's sin had consequences, right? And you couldn't just sweep that under the rug. But God doesn't just forgive his sins. He works through his sins. And that's why Matthew starts off the New Testament with this genealogy. Matthew starts off the Testament to let you see, this is how God has always worked. Like, I think the work of God is often like, you do your stuff, and then God steps back and says, all right, let's start there. Matthew, the reason Matthew starts off this way, you remember who he was? Somebody tell me, who's Matthew? Tax collector. Tax collector. A very shameful professor. That was very, very energetic, Nick. Thank you so much. (laughs) Took me a while to appreciate just how... (laughs) Way to be front row, man. That was... (laughs) Tax (laughs) collector. tax collector. And Matthew wants you to know he gets this. He got this. Matthew wants you to know that sinners aren't just a part of the story. They're the point of the story. Like that's why Jesus came, because we can't do this on our own. So... Is this your doing? This is your doing, isn't it? (laughs) Um, One of the things I think, if I could leave you with when we do communion, one of the things I think is telling of the human condition is that we take communion. But... Communion is not meant to be taken. It's meant to be received. Taking was the sin of Adam and Eve. It was reaching for something that wasn't given. And Christmas means, what do you have that you have not received? We receive communion because we couldn't do this on our own. Jesus came from sin and for sin, but unlike sin, to give us the life we could not get our own self. Let's pray for this as we receive communion together. Father, thank you for this season. Thank you for the hope and peace that comes 
with being a part of a community of faith that's filled with your spirit. Pray that we don't take it for granted. God, as we think of the ways that we have hurt other people, the ways that we have hurt our own life, we're recognizing that the problem that we see in the world is also in our mirrors. And so we're grateful. We're grateful that you, out of your generous love, did what we could not do. You stepped into time and space, and you lived the life we could not live. And so, Father, we receive that life now. We confess to you that we want to submit our lives to you. We confess to you that we want to receive your life. Bless this bread, which is your body, and this cup, which is your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you.